So welcome to the Academy, where our mission is to improve lives through education, information, and some cool stories. And today we have some cool stories. So the podcast today is with Dr. Richard Baynosa, and he's the uh, inaugural chair of plastic and reconstructive surgery for the Kirk Corian School of Medicine at UNLV. You know, it's interesting because this podcast is medically dense. He's going to talk about a lot of things that are medicine. But one of the things that's really capturing to me is he talks about the humanity of plastic and reconstructive surgery. And and through that, you start to see the human being who is actually doing the, the plastic and reconstructive surgery. And all of this combined, at least for me, and I hope does the same for you, really gave me a sense of some of the biases I have and how those biases melt away as far as who it is that has reconstructive surgery and those who don't. Dr. Rich Baynosa, uh, my dear friend, I'm very excited to be here with you today. We're going to talk about lots of different things, but first of all, you are the chair of plastic and reconstructive surgery here at the Kirk Corian School of Medicine. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about your journey. We're going to talk about reattaching thumbs, uh, (laughs) robotics, a whole bunch of different things around it. And I'll tell you, this is now maybe two years ago. We had a a budget retreat, and you talked about all the different things that your department does, and it is fascinating to me. This topic, to me, is way different than I think most people are going to think about when they think about plastic and reconstructive surgery. So I'm excited to get into it, but I want to start with you telling the audience a little bit about your journey, you know, where you went through school, how you got into medicine, how you got into plastic and reconstructive surgery, and then off we go. All right. Well, thanks for having me. It's certainly uh, an honor and a pleasure to be able to spend the next hour or so here with you. Great to, that you were able at, to get at least two hours. Rich. At least two so. hours. <laughs> even better, even better. <laughs> so, I mean, I, my um, journey has probably been more circuitous than, than most uh, folks. I grew up in Southern California, L.A., and I know when most people say L.A., they say some kind of, you know, suburb or whatnot in L.A., and I literally grew up right around downtown L.A. and um, the Echo Park area, which um, – you know, at that point was somewhat of a rough area. I think now it's um, all upscale and gentrified and, you know, now um, referred to as DTL um, LA. But, um, you know, started out there, um, went to mostly uh, uh, Catholic schools um, growing up. um, And um, it's one of those things to try to um, keep you out of the public school system and really focus on um, education. And that thankfully um, led me to... um, UCLA uh, for undergrad, which, you know, (laughs) funny enough, um, when I was growing up, I thought I wanted to be a marine biologist watching all those old Jacques Cousteau's and things like that. Yeah, which was great up until I found out that I got seasick when I got (laughs) on on those boats. So that ended that really quick. You know, I don't know if I ever told you this. My daughter is graduating this semester in, uh, in marine biology. Oh, awesome. Yeah, University of Hawaii. Oh, that's, that's funny. Great. So many times we've talked about our kids, and, <laughs> and uh, I never knew that. Oh, so, that was, sorry, go ahead. You, no, that's awesome. Marine right? biology. That's great. No, so, I mean, yeah, marine biology, then I thought about veterinary, and, and then ultimately, you know, um, settled on medicine um, just because, you know, I think um, being able to um, talk to um, people and actually hear um, 
their issues and try to deal with them is completely separate from, you know, just um, and all due respect to veterinarians taking care of people that can't respond back to you or whatnot. Um, and then med school led me to um, UC San Diego, which, uh, again, by the ocean, um, which um, I love the ocean and the beach and, and whatnot. But it, it was um, a step for me, um, you know, growing up in a, um, you know, um, Southeast Asian, Asian type um, family where family is very tight knit and close, but to be able to break away from um, at least slightly uh, from those bonds and kind of go out on my own um, to be away from home um, in San Diego. Um, and then um, decided initially in med school, I thought I wanted to um, just do uh, primary care and whatnot. Um, but uh, uh, ultimately, I had a um, rotation in surgery. Um, and uh, that was the end of that. Um, you know, really um, liked working with my hands. Uh, and I think the, the biggest thing for me was the um, immediate gratification and immediate um, knowledge that you had impacted um, the patient as, um, as opposed to, again, all due respect to primary care, the longitudinal type care where, you know, it may take um, months and months and years, you know, um, for those impacts. So, um, and then, uh, you know, again, to uh, take another step um, out of the comfort zone and to leave California and for those of you that um, have, are from California, you know that um, California is like a whole different country. And, and when you were born and raised there, you're like drinking the Kool-Aid. And once you leave, you realize how much different the rest of the country and the world is really <laughs> in comparison to California. But it was nice to be able to come to Las Vegas and be in a place that was still close enough to home that I could um, drive home or take a quick flight, uh, but far enough away that, you know, you still had your independence and really felt, you know, on your own. So, so I'm from Texas, so we have our own brand of Kool-Aid, so I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. Much different sides yeah. of the Kool-Aid. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I mentioned that you're the chair of the Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery, but Originally, when you came to the school, you were that that department was a division, or that was a division under surgery. You're actually the inaugural chair yeah. for plastic and reconstructive surgery. So it's been interesting for you being able to kind of get out of the shadow, so to speak, there. And the former chair, a couple of chairs back now, was a hand surgeon as well, correct? Uh, I mean, he was really a renaissance man, jack of all trades. He did hand surgery, but was one of the, um, you know, real um, giants in microsurgery as well as hyperbaric, which he did his research in. And I kind of followed in his footsteps doing a lot of basic science research in that as well. Um, he was a great mentor uh, and friend, Dr. Um, William Zamboni, um, who was the chair um, of the entire department of surgery as a plastic surgeon, which is um, not very common. There's probably been three or four um, in the country, um, you know, uh, and, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, during the transition um, from uh, the state school to, you know, then Reno and then UNLV, um, he uh, um, got sick and passed away tragically. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was then one of those things where, um the person that was mentoring me and who I was looking to as, um, you know, my um, guide in regards to this whole 
academic journey was suddenly gone. And um, he was a program director, the chief of plastic surgery, chair of the Department of Surgery. Um, and, you know, it was kind of left to kind of pick up a lot of the pieces and make sure that his legacy kind of stayed intact, which um, was, a you know, a, a big kind of uh, um, role to uh, step into. But So the bariatric part, or uh, sorry, hyperbaric part that, uh, that he did, which I didn't realize until you just said that, you're well known for that uh, nationally and internationally as well. We talked about this a little bit before. It's, uh, I think this is fascinating. The things you're known for in the city are different than the things that you're known for nationally and internationally and, and that you've been lecturing a lot about. If you could talk a little bit about that difference, and I think it would be cool to let people know, you know that you were chosen, very distinguished award, that you've been lecturing around the country because of this award. So a lot to cover in that one question. You've got 30 seconds to do <laughs> But yeah, no, I mean, I think what you do from a local standpoint based on what you can impact on the community um, and then regional, national, and international are oftentimes very, very different things. You know, so um, just speaking to hyperbarics, you know, our role in the hyperbarics um, was primarily from the basic science and clinical standpoint, where we did a lot of basic science research in the animal labs on UNLV main campus in the White Building, and we would um, do ischemia reperfusion um, studies as well as compromised graft and flap studies uh, on rats and then treat them with hyperbaric oxygen uh, to increase the flap um, survival. Um, survival. And um, what so uh, can ahead. I just ask you uh, in general? Let's talk even drill down. Sure. What is the hyperbaric aspect, right? So, what is the mechanism that you're talking about with hyperbarics? So, essentially, you know, the patients that we were treating, um, both in the lab as well as clinically, are patients that had disruptions of blood flow um, to either flaps or um, in uh, Dr. Zamboni's original research. Um, a lot of um, traumatic amputations and replants and things like that. And, um, you know, essentially based on the tissue type, um, each different tissue type requires a certain amount of oxygen for it to survive. You know, skin is a little bit more resistant um, to uh, ischemia reperfusion injury than, say, muscle. And um, things with high metabolic requirements, such as muscle, um, can only be ischemic for a short amount of time, right? And so... Oftentimes when we have things like, you know, traumatic amputations that require replantation, it can take several hours to get those patients into the hospital, let alone the amount of time it will take to repair um, those traumatized injuries. Or even in other cases that aren't necessarily related to trauma, when we have things like um, transplanted tissues or um, uh, flaps that are raised, um, depending on the length of time, ischemia reperfusion injury is one of the things that can certainly affect the outcome um, of those tissues. And the way that hyperbaric, essentially, um, or what we've um, kind of demonstrated in our lab uh, that hyperbaric does is that not only does it increase the amount of oxygen that's available for the tissues, because, you know, for those that don't know, hyperbaric oxygen is basically um, breathing 100% oxygen at pressure, two and a half uh, atmospheres absolute, which is equivalent to being, you know, several um, meters or several feet underwater. And basically what the pressure does is drive the oxygen into the tissues. And maybe this is getting a little bit more 
in the weeds and complicated in regards to physiology, but the oxygen carrying capacity um, equation kind of relates to the amount of hemoglobin in your system, the amount of oxygen that you're uh, breathing, and then a small tiny fraction of oxygen dissolved in the plasma, okay? Typically, that amount is very minuscule and inconsequential, but at hyperbaric um, pressures and with breathing that amount of oxygen um, at that pressure, that drives the oxygen into the plasma to allow those tissues uh, to be sustained during those uh, hyperbaric oxygen dives. The other thing that we found out in the lab was that um, some of the upregulations um, of different molecules, um, most notably nitric oxide, um, allow um, some vasodilation of the, um, the uh, venules as well as uh, prevents um, neutrophil adhesion, which uh, is one of the secondary insults in ischemia reperfusion injury. And that uh, work has been, um, you know, followed by other people as well and, and uh, um, confirmed with other um, modalities separate from hyperbaric oxygen. But the neutrophil adhesion from ischemia reperfusion is now uh, a well-described thing. Yeah, I mean, it's the, the idea that uh, you know, some of the damage, in fact, a significant amount of the damage when you have this, these types of traumas is because you cut off oxygen, and now you've got a method to be able to get that oxygen back and in, in, in a, even greater than it would be in a normal situation. That's got to be a major uh, increase in being able to save the, the, the limb or the, uh, the particular area. Yeah, I mean, it certainly can be, and it really depends on, you know, the, the tissue injury mm -hmm. or the, the type of tissue trauma. Um, you know, one of the things that um, is actually unique um, in the replant um, era, and one of the things that Dr. Zamboni always used to talk about and show pictures of was um, he had a case with a, a complete traumatic arm amputation. And, um, you know, he hooked up the blood vessels, hooked up the muscle and everything else. Um, and several days later, the entire arm ended up dying. The muscle became necrotic. When he went back in, you know, for the eventual completion amputation, the vessels were actually open. The problem was that the muscles had taken such a, a hit from the yeah. um, reperfusion injury, you know, for the ischemia and the reperfusion injury, um, that, you know, the muscle just didn't survive, right? And so those are other things that you kind of have to look at and deal with. And, you know, you just look at uh, ischemia reperfusion injury in multiple different situations, Compartment syndromes, um, you know, when people get their um, legs crushed and then, you know, that crushing um, uh, injury is relieved, then the muscle can still swell up and get compressed within the compartments and then become non-functional or, or um, cause significant problems later. So uh, it's so one of the, one of the many things that's fascinating to me about this, and I'm, I'm glad that we just had this part of the conversation. I may get in trouble for this statement, but we're not talking about boobs and butts, right? No. And when and when you hear about plastic surgery in Vegas, maybe that's where you default to. But there's so many other things that you and, and your team do um, that that that's one of the reasons why I think that this is fascinating. So let's step back for just a second. You t you talked a bit about how you moved into the area in general, but for you as a as a professional or you as a person, one of the things that's really big for us in the academy is talking about our North Star, right? So what's your North Star? Like what is the, your mission as an individual, as a department chair, as a person, professional, and so forth? Multiple different questions there as well. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I think from a professional standpoint, 
multiple different goals. I mean, um, coming to Las Vegas um, from a place like California, you know, you realize some of the things that, you know, Las Vegas as a great city, great people, great community, they don't have as many of the resources as, you know, we had potentially in California. Um, the education, um, the healthcare is not necessarily up to par, but the people that are here um, are so much more, I wouldn't say better or worse in one way or the other, but I think more welcoming. You know, uh, you know even though this place has grown to be about a population greater Las Vegas, 2.8 million, you know, you still feel like, you know, something when uh, to be said about being a local. You know, yeah. a lot of people, you know, know each other. They know the different small little um, hole-in-the-wall shops and restaurants and things like that, whereas I remember growing up in, in uh, L.A., you didn't really talk to your neighbors. If you talked to your neighbor, people thought you were weird, or if you talked to said hi to somebody walking down the street, it was one of those things because it's a different kind of community, different kind of culture. And so, you know, I mean, one of my goals is to try to improve the care of Las Vegas um, to make it on par with, you know, a lot of the other great cities, um, you know, in the country and in the world, really, because, you know, um, we have a city that's large enough um, to be able to not just warrant that, but to really need that. Um, I think also professionally, um, one of my goals is to um, certainly carry on the legacy of my mentor, um, the former chair, um, Bill Zamboni, um, as a friend. And, you know, for, from how he passed away so tragically, um, you know, it was difficult uh, on me, like not having that mentor, not having that person that, you know, in academics, you know, it's priceless to have that mentor to guide you, to lead you, and, and show you what to do when you're coming up. Um, and to fall into um, that role very early um, and basically have to uh, figure things out, um, it's certainly a challenge, and um, but it's certainly something also that, you know, you kind of wear as a badge of honor, badge of courage to say that, okay, you know, not only um, do I have this challenge, but we accept this challenge and, you know, we're going to try to even make it better than, than what it was. Um, and then also see, you know, for those that come after me uh, to give them um, a route to do that as well, right? Um, so, you know, I think from a uh, academic and professional standpoint, it's to, um, you know, not only care for the community, but also put UNLV and Vegas on the map to say that um, we do stuff here and we are capable of doing stuff here that is just as good and potentially even more on the forefront than anybody else. But I think also leading back to um, Bill was he passed away so suddenly and so tragically. The other North Star in my life is definitely my family. Mm -hmm. And to know that, you know, Time is not always guaranteed, and to make sure that, you know, um, I focus on, on them and don't neglect them so they keep me grounded, you know, no matter how hard I have to work at home, you know. I mean, I used to have my um, secretaries block out all the, um, the uh, uh, special um, dates and, um, you know, performances and things like that from my kids because I'll tell you, there was one time um, when my kids um, – 
I made it to one of their fall festivals, or I don't know, my wife always corrects me because she knows all the proper terms for these <laughs> things. But, you know, whatever it was, it was um, one of those things where, you know, the parents are allowed to be on campus. Right. They're walking around with all the fair um, games and the animals and whatnot. And I was walking with my kids. I think one of them was preschool. The other one's like maybe first grade. And uh, we saw some other kid walking with a teacher. I'm like, who is that kid? And they're like, oh, that's so-and-so, Daddy. Their parents never come. And I'm like, oh, my God. They know this at preschool. Yeah. If I'm not there, they're going to be trying. And I remember that, you know, as a kid. So, you know, um, that those things really, you know, um, impact you. And, and, you know, no matter how long it seems when the kids are growing up, it's a short time. And soon enough, they're going to not want to be around you. So, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's it's such an important point, too, because, you know, I I see you with your kids and your great dad, uh, Jenny, obviously is a great mom as well. But those that's the kind of investment that you, you know, it pays off a million times over. Right. Yeah, that's what you would hope. And you hope that you have enough time um, to be able to um, cash in that investment and stuff like that. But I mean, I think, you know, it was the Buddha that said the one mistake that we all make is thinking that we have enough time. Yeah. We don't always. So. Well, so uh, one of the things that you had mentioned that I think is really interesting as well is, is being able to, you know, because of uh, Dr. Zamboni, you know, passing away quickly, you are motivated now to, to not only spend time with your family, but also your professional family and mentor those people as well. So talk a little bit about that. What are some of the things that you do in that mentorship role? Well, I mean, so first, I guess, in order to be a mentor, you kind of have to have that knowledge on what to do to actually bring somebody else out there, right? So I still, you know, I think I had literally just um, gotten promoted to associate um, professor when Dr. Zamboni passed, and he was the one that was trying to tell me all the things to do. So, you know, the promotion from associate to professor, and then even just um, becoming um, a name on the national stage. And like we talked about, you know, there's differences in what you want to do, how you can impact the community, impact, um, you know, your standing on a local level, as opposed to what you do on the regional and national level. And so, you know, um, a lot of that came with trial and error. And, um, you know, because I didn't really have a mentor to introduce me to people um, regionally and nationally, I just had to be like more outgoing and be able to meet people and introduce myself to people and um, foster a lot of friendships. And thankfully, there were a lot of people that um, I had uh, come up with during my years in the lab because, I mean, I did nine years of training, two years in the lab. And all. Um, you know, the one thing about academics is the people that are interested in academics and, you know, um, doing research and things like that end up going to the same meetings and presenting their research at the same meeting. So you develop, you know, um, a camaraderie with those folks. And, you know, ultimately they end up um, going into different universities. And, you know, it's um, great to be able to say that a lot of people that I came up with as former residents and things like that, they're now um, professors and chiefs and chairmen at, you know, big name institutions, Harvard, MD Anderson, Miami, Stanford, you know, um, UCLA, 
right? Um, and we knew each other when we were coming up and, you know, didn't have any names to ourselves and didn't have any of that cachet that, you know, you have. And, you know, it's also one of those things where you um, also respect them more because you know who they were when they were nothing and they're still kind of the same people. So, um, but again, going back to your question in regards to mentorship, some, a lot of those things, um, you know, my faculty hopefully don't have to do as much, even though I encourage that. Um, I try as much as possible to introduce them to all the people that I know, because that was one of the, the hardest things for me um, was to get um, those introductions. Because on a regional and national level in academics, that's how a lot of things work, right? Um, once people know you, they recognize you, um, and not just seeing you, but they know your accomplishments. They know um, the things that you um, have published. They know the, um, the uh, places that you have um, given talks at, you know, and they consistently see that you're engaged and involved in, um, you know, being at the forefront of your profession, in this case, plastic surgery, then, you know, they're willing to say, hey, I know this guy's doing this, you know, let's ask him to um, be, um, you know, uh, on this book chapter, or, you know, I'm going to nominate you for um, this committee, because, you know, I want someone that's going to work hard on my committee, or, you know, those kinds of things, right? Um, so I think those things are uh, important. Um, and then from um, an even more uh, higher level, organized plastic surgery, there are multiple different societies in each one of our different specialties, knowing which ones are the ones that are the most prestigious. And to be honest with you, a lot of these prestigious ones have like unwritten rules of how you ascend um, or even become a member in the ones that are invitation only. And most people don't know that. And I'll tell you that, um, you know, I'm involved in multiple um, DEI committees, and we talk a lot about imposter syndrome uh, and not feeling like mm -hmm. um, you are worthy because of what you um, have accomplished or, more importantly, what you don't believe your um, accomplishments mean to other people, right? Um, and that's really downplaying stuff, but a lot of it is not knowing um, that those accomplishments mean something or how to push forward those accomplishments to other people so that they can recognize you for what you do, you know. And that is, I think, even more um, impactful and um, more pronounced um, with people of color, with females, um, and people that traditionally have been more marginalized. Because, for example, you know, I um, one of my friends that um, was giving the women plastic surgery um, talk and had a session during the middle of our national meeting asked me to come and a good friend of mine um so I came I was the only guy there and uh she was telling me she asked me to stand up and obviously you feel more intimidated because you're the only male there in front of a you know a, a CEO of um very accomplished um and, and very bright um women in plastic surgery um and they're like so how does it feel like being the and it's very intimidating um and I think there's a lot of uh, things that um, to be applauded here that, you know, have um, this uh, group together. OK, um, but, you know, I also told them some of the things that you also have to look at is not just be um, happy for what you have. Never let people, you know, pull the wool over your eyes over what you don't have. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I pointed out to them that, hey, you know, it's great that you have this forum that you are, um, that you have all these, um, women here, but do you realize that, you know, 
the business meeting for the society is happening simultaneously, and I agree to come to this, but now I don't get a vote in the business meeting, right? And you're happy that you have it, which is great, but you are not, you know, getting a chance to sit in on wow. the business meeting where you could make an influence and make a vote and things like that. Same thing with the imposter syndrome, right? I mean, um, <clears throat> I brought up to, and this has happened either when I have been asked to be on panels or when I've asked people to be on panels, minorities and women, when they get asked to be on a panel, an expert panel, um, you know, when giving speeches in front of national, international audiences, oftentimes they question themselves and say, I don't know if I'm, you know, necessarily the person to do that, right? And if you ask a guy, regardless of how much they know about it, they're going to say, yes, yeah. I want to be oh, there, yeah, right? I mean, and, yeah. and it's that different mentality yeah. and that different way of thinking to say that, you know, I deserve this. I need to be there. And not only that, if you are there, you empower other people to say, hey, I can do that as well. You know? the, the imposter syndrome is really interesting. Uh, and the the self-promotion, I mean that this in a positive way, right? Not the sort of, you know, overdoing it. When we have uh, CV workshops mm -hmm. for the women in medicine, one of the things that we find a lot of times is they underrepresent themselves. And that's not unique to us. That's yeah. just the way it is. Right. And uh, in the imposter syndrome, the, the research on this is fascinating. Not only the frequency of it, which is much more frequent. You know, everybody thinks that everybody else is okay, but I'm an imposter, right? Exactly. And and in fact, it's rampant in many, many fields. In fact, the higher the field, to a large extent, the more imposter syndrome. Exactly. But the, the remedy for it is so simple in so many ways that uh, I think it's, it's really fascinating. It's such a pervasive effect. Yeah. And then yet the folks at Stanford do some really good work with this as well. Yeah. But uh, so, um, yeah, and, we, and happy to talk about that as much as you want. But I would like to switch a little bit and talk about some of your cases because you've had some fascinating cases. We're going to start with Ben Mays. All right. Tell us about Ben Mays. Uh, so Ben Mays was um, several years ago, and he was a um, participant in um, one of our local rodeo competitions. Um, very, very interesting guy. Um, and, um, you know, he was doing some roping or something or other and um, actually got his thumb caught up um, uh, in the rope and it got completely uh, amputated. Um, and um, he went immediately over to the side, knew that there was something wrong, and he said, get me to the nearest level one trauma center because, you know, imagine this. This was not the first time he had a finger removed. Yeah, I read so. that he had uh, three fingers that yeah. got caught before. Yeah, so yeah. he he knew exactly what to do, and uh, um, you know I was on call at the trauma center, you know at UMC, where we take call, and you know we're the only level one trauma center in Las Vegas, as most people know, and we're the only replantation center in the entire state. So, you know, uh, he came in, and we were able to um, isolate all the, um, you know. Uh, pieces of the anatomy, essentially, because when a thumb or any other um, part gets essentially cut off, you have to basically hook everything up. It's not just suturing the skin right. and, you know, it's back on, but you have the bone, you have the tendons, you have the arteries, veins, and nerves, and things like that to actually get it to be a functional 
um, repair. And so, by the way, um, I've I've tried to put together a Lego bonsai tree and <laughs> couldn't do it. So I can't imagine <laughs> this piece of it. And and his thumb was still in the glove at that, this point. Yeah, apparently. I mean, he brought it, and you know, and they put it on ice, and um, you know, it, it's supposed to be transported. Not directly on ice, but in, you know, one of those um, uh, plastic bags or, yeah. you know, Ziploc bags. So it's not directly on ice. So it doesn't have the freeze bite or the frostbite damage and stuff like that. But you know, he did all the right things and we were able to get to him in time, you know. And thankfully enough for like fingers and things like that, they don't have a lot of muscle. So, you know, it's not quite as um, critical in regards to getting in within a couple hours versus like, you know, a, a complete arm um where it's uh, multiple areas muscle. But, yeah, you know, we got him back in, got his arm uh, or got his finger attached, and, uh, you know, uh, he came back afterwards. And, you know, it's funny they did a um, local news coverage on it. <laughs> yeah, I think he went back to rodeoing and so <laughs> too again. So. That's what he said. He yeah. said he's going to go back to two things, rodeo and his J-O-B. Yeah. Those are the two things he's going to do, yeah. so, which is amazing yeah. to me. So, and, and how long was that recovery period? Do you have any idea? That was a period of several months because, you know, um, you have to wait for the um, bones to basically be strong enough to start doing, um, you know, uh, some physical therapy and hand therapy, rehab, those kinds of things. But, you know, I mean, knowing him and, you know, he probably sped up that process (laughs) several more months than what we would normally do. So you've got uh, other cases as well. Give us a couple of other interesting cases? Well, I mean, I'll tell you, plastic surgery in general, as, as you mentioned before, plastic surgery is not what the majority of people think plastic surgery is. I mean, that's why we like to refer to our department as plastic and reconstructive surgery, right? Um, in the past and historically, the plastic surgeons used to be referred to as the surgeon surgeons, right? Uh, plastic surgery um, developed out of uh, a need um, from World War um, II, I believe it was, um, from all the facial injuries and um, soft tissue trauma. Um, and the specialty itself has kind of continued to evolve from that need. Certainly the cosmetic surgery and aesthetic surgery is what people kind of know about it because we're able to take things that people don't like about themselves and try to improve on um, you know what's already normal. But taking things that are not normal or have been... Um, you know, basically either traumatized or, or um, defects created because of um, tumors, cancer, things like that, or even congenital are things that we um, look to uh, fix and bring, as, you know, uh, the saying is always form and function um, back to those patients. So not only do we do trauma, such as the replant that we talked about, but we do reconstruction from um, cancer extirpations. I do a ton of breast um, reconstruction. I also do reconstruction for um, colorectal cancers, skin cancers, um, defects that patients end up having from spine surgery, um, neurosurgery. Um, uh, there are congenital surgeries that we do and my partners do um, that address cleft lips, cleft palates, um, craniofacial anomalies. Um, we uh, take care of pressure ulcers and complex wounds that can't heal, um, you know, normally. We also um, are at the forefront of gender affirmation surgery and the LGBTQ plus community, right, to help them um, with their journeys. 
Um, and, you know, interestingly enough, and this may not be well known, but the first transplant surgery um, was developed by a plastic surgeon. Uh, Joseph Murray was the first one to do a kidney transplant. Um, and that all came about um, because of what we were able to do with um, uh, uh, vessels and microsurgery. And a lot of the things that we're able to do in terms of moving one tissue um, from one place to another. And there's a creative side to it as well, being able to take one tissue and create an entire other body part uh, from it. You know, um, like one of the surgeries that I do that I was the first one to bring it here to Las Vegas um, was a deep flap surgery. I think, you know, you had mentioned briefly that I went to Belgium um, to do part of my training. And in Belgium at the University of Ghent um, was one of the um, very, very unique um, institutions that um, they had helped um, develop and popularize the, um, the deep flap procedure. And what it is is essentially, you know, the previous procedure um, took the skin and the fat that um, would typically be discarded in a tummy tuck abdominal plasty type operation. In the past, they would take the muscle as the carrier of the blood vessels, okay, um, to that skin and fat, and then hook them up to the blood vessels in the chest, okay? But when you take muscle, that introduces additional morbidity. People can have bulges, hernias, and things like that. Um, and basically, we took some of our um, know-how from microsurgery and dissecting out blood vessels to be able to dissect out um, these deep flat vessels, which are basically one to two millimeters in size, and dissect out the blood vessels through that muscle and preserve that muscle and be able to not take the muscle and minimize your chances of bulge and hernia and take that flat piece of skin and fat and really shape it into uh, the breast and make something out of nothing. And you know, one of the things that was very unique also uh, in Belgium was they were able um, to really put an art to it because, you know, in Belgium, um, the women there are, don't have the, necessarily the same body habits as they do here. And they're um, very typically um, a lot lower BMI than we have. And uh, to be able to create a breast from really a, a super flat admin was, was really something I wanted to um, learn and develop. And I think that's one of the... Um, unique key things there because it's not just the the mere fact of doing something technical but the artistic part of you know trying to create what the patient um, is looking for and is desiring and we're continuing to push the envelope on these types of surgeries not only are we able to now transfer those tissues up without the muscle but we're also able to dissect out the nerves that are right alongside of the arteries and veins and hook them up to the nerve in the chest because as most people don't recognize, when a breast is removed for a mastectomy for breast cancer, they also remove the nerves. So what, what's left over doesn't have any sensation. So hooking up the nerves can potentially restore some sensation back to those patients that don't have you know, any sensation after the mastectomy. And we also um, have techniques that um, uh, <clears throat> can help address lymphedema. You know, when you remove lymph nodes um, as part of the treatment of breast cancer, patients can develop lymphedema and the swelling of the arm. Um, and again, using microsurgical techniques where you can hook up um, the lymphatic vessels to actually empty out and drain into the veins because the lymphatics aren't there. Or we can even take uh, a lymph node from a different place and hook them up to the areas where they need to actually function and, you know, address that lymphedema. So it's just taking the problems that are occurring from treatment of something and trying to, um, you know, solve those problems. 
Yeah, it's it's really amazing to think about. You've got you're looking at the intact system, and what can we take out of this system to create something new? Right. It goes back to the Legos example, (laughs) right? You're using the different pieces and parts to create something new with it. It, One of the things that occurs to me as you're talking about this is, you know, if you think about surgery, so let's say trauma surgery as an example or, or some other types of surgery, these are done with the intention of improving the, the state and, and to a large extent, the aesthetics of that mean very little, right? I mean, nobody wants a bad scar and those kinds of things, but that's not the priority. The priority is whatever the, uh, you know, is being acted on surgically, uh, whether it being a compound fracture or, or, you know, some type of internal bleeding on and on and on, right? But plastic and reconstructive surgery, it has pieces of that, but the other piece that you're just talking about is the aesthetics piece, right? Yeah, I mean, so when you talk about aesthetics, you know, I mean, everybody wants things to look good, even, and, and that's one of the pushes right now in all of surgery, right? Which is why minimally invasive and robotic surgery has become more of a thing because Patients don't want long incisions. They want mm-hmm. small incisions because obviously smaller incisions will look better than longer incisions. I think the real crux of the difference between um, other surgical specialties and what plastic and reconstructive surgery does is that, you know, we're not dealing with, you know, things that are going to kill you. We're not dealing with cancers. We're not dealing with, you know, um, uh, saving people's lives from trauma, okay? Um, what we deal with a lot of times is form and function and really – a lot of what our literature shows and shows the impact on, particularly in things like breast reconstruction and, um, uh, you know, congenital craniofacially form, is the psychosocial impact mm-hmm. and the psychosocial outcome of things. You know, for a lot of disease processes, the survival rates have become so good that, you know, it's not a question of whether the patient is going to survive. It's how are they going to survive after you know, the cancer is gone or after, you know, they've been... Um, their life has been saved from this trauma, right? What is their life going to be? And for many people, if you talk to them, they would prefer not to have those lives if they can't do certain things or they can't feel a certain way about themselves. So for breast reconstruction, for example, right? You know, a lot of people's approaches are different in regards to breast reconstruction. My uh, my approach is, you know, I have the um, ability and I, I have the options to give you any kind of breast reconstruction that you like. If you want to use tissue expanders and implants, that's an option. If you want to use your own tissue, that's an option. If you want to use your own tissue with a smaller operation as opposed to, you know, microsurgery, that's an option as well. If you want to do nothing, that's an option. If you want to not have a mastectomy and just have a lumpectomy and rearrange the tissue so you're still symmetric, that's an option, right? And I talk to the patient about all the different options, even just being flat, right? Because for those women, you know, and it's it's difficult for them because there's so much information out mm-hmm. there, right? And there are so many different um, things that they have to deal with. Um, they really don't think about what they want, you know, um, themselves. They ask, you can ask a lot of other people, but other people are not yourself. Right. Other people cannot say what you're, because I tell in close, everybody's going to look the same, right? It's how you look at yourself when you look in the mirror, what is going to make you feel whole, right? 
And for some patients, that's as little surgery as possible. For some, it's going to be something that feels normal. For some, it's going to be, hey, I want to look better than I started out with. And if I look like a breast augmentation, so be it. And if we can do that, you know, we give that to them, you know, um, as much as we can, right? Um, so, you know, can I ask, what kind of guidance do you give? Because, you know, this isn't like an everyday question that people think about just for no reason, right? They're in, a, they're in a fragile situation, right? And now they're needing to make a really important and potentially lifelong decision. Right. What kind of guidance do you give them? Well, first I tell them to, you know, think of themselves first, right? You can ask as many questions as you want. You can ask other people's opinions, but make sure that your priority list is what you and your significant other want, not what everybody else thought was best for them, mm-hmm. right? And then at least know the options. Because one of the things that I like to do for my patients is to maintain those options and not burn any bridges. Say, for example, mastectomy, right? I try to, um, you know, if we're talking about steering patients or guiding patients or, you know, giving them uh, at least uh, the best foundation, I usually try to steer them towards a tissue expander first. And tissue expander is a temporary implant that can be adjusted in size, right? Um, And that, I believe, gives patients the most options because, to your point, when you're having to deal with cancer and the stress and the anxiety of making sure the cancer is going away, you can't really focus on how you look or how you feel or, or whatnot. So the benefit of the tissue expander is it's temporary. Regardless of whether you choose to exchange that tissue expander with an implant or with your own tissue, be it abdominal tissue or any other tissue, right? And typically at that point when we're doing that, the cancer is gone or at least, you know, dealt with uh, to a satisfactory level where they can continue on and they can really focus on, okay, now what do I want? Plus, you know, with the expander, you know, oftentimes you'll ask patient, okay, what's your bra size? Most people don't know. And to be honest, when they do say a bra size, you know, every manufacturer has a different definition of what a cup size is, right? And so, you know, what my definition of is smaller or larger is, you know, difficult to say. But with the tissue expander, they can, you know, continue to ex- expand or deflate or whatever to what they actually want. And they can look at themselves in the mirror and say, okay, this works for me, right? And then now we're in a, um, basically a collaborative effort in regards to, okay, this is the size that you want. Now I'm going to try to put something in there that will match that. I think also, you know, for women that have never had an implant, that think that implant is a good idea, you know, this gives them an idea of what an implant will feel like. And an implant for reconstruction is a whole different beast from an implant for breast augmentation, right? Because those women still have a breast. They have something to cover over the implant, whereas the implant or the flap is the entirety of the breast, right? And so I'll have some patients that come in wanting to have an implant. They have the tissue expander and they'll say, you know, doc, this really doesn't feel like what I thought it was going to feel like. This feels foreign, doesn't feel like my own tissue. You know, let's talk about that flap again, you know, that you really didn't think about Mm -hmm. because you thought, hey, it was a bigger surgery and I didn't want to be in the hospital and things like that. And the people that wanted a flap sometimes because they think, oh, yeah, I want a more natural surgery, you know, they have the tissue expander. They're like, hey, I kind of like how this looks. You know, I, I like how it feels. And, you know, it was a, um, an easier surgery. Let's just do an implant. And that still leaves them all of those options, right, to be able to say, you know, I can do 
whatever I like so long we haven't burned any bridges, you know, and I don't try to push them one way or the other. I just give them the opportunity to, um, you know, really make the choice on their own time. And, you know, one of the other things I try to um, tell my patients and if I can guide them towards anything, it's usually that, hey, take the time to make this decision and don't let anybody else influence you, right? And I don't make the decision in regards to whether they can have surgery or not. I'll let their medical doctors think, because a lot of times I'll get patients that are 70, 80 years old to say, hey, you know, they sent me over to see you because they thought I should talk to you for reconstruction, but, you know, I'm too old, I'm this and that, you know, I don't think I need reconstruction. And, you know, I'll be very honest with them, very blunt with them to say, you know what, you know, we're treating your breast cancer because we want you to live. I'm assuming you are treating your cancer and going through all these surgeries and chemo and mastectomy because you want to live. If you want to live, don't you want to live with the way that you would want to, you know, see yourself in the mirror? Because, you know, if we were just going to let you go, why even go through the surgery? You know, why even go through the point of treating this cancer? Right? It's a, it, so. You know, the, the idea of making a decision when you're in survival mode for what will be a future of thriving, that seems like there's some incongruence there, right? People have, it's really difficult to shift your mind there is. in that situation. And I think, you know, one of those things that um, really um, pushed me that and really was um, in, impactful on, on my approach was, you know, um, as plastic surgeons, we used to think the same way. If they had metastatic disease, um, we wouldn't offer him reconstruction. Um, and then early on in my career, I had a patient that wanted to have a, a free flap surgery, which is, you know, one of the more complicated surgeries. And back then it was, a, a, you know, the kind of dogma, oh, don't offer them a big complex surgery if they have metastatic disease. But my wife is a breast cancer surgeon and, you know, she's thinking, oh, these patients can live a lot longer. They have good chemotherapy, immunotherapies, you know, that targeted therapies. And if they say that they're going to live, you know, another five, 10 years and, you know, and I talked to one of um, the super um, well-known folks in breast reconstruction, Scott Spear, that's now um, passed away. But yeah, so well, what do you think? You know, I mean, nobody's saying this. Nobody's publishing. He's like, no, you should go ahead and do it, you know. And, you know, it, it's great to be able to say that, you know, I saw that that same patient that was my first, um, you know, deep flap surgery in somebody that had um, metastatic disease. And I saw her in her seven-year follow-up, you know. So she was able to have, uh, you know, basically restoring her breast with her own tissue, which is what she wanted, um, seven years after that, you know, I had actually seen her. And she'd gone for several years with nothing, you know, because she didn't want to have, you know, an implant and stuff like that. So, I mean, those kinds of things, like, really burn in your memory to say, you know, focus on the patient. Focus yeah. on what people want and don't say, okay, these people, I mean, to be honest with you, even if it was just going to be for a year, you know, if you can give them that, you know, um, peace of mind and, you know, return to wholeness. And, and, you know, one of the things that folks don't know is that breast reconstruction um, is, is not just a, a need or a want, it's a right. There's a federal law, the Women's and Health Cancer Rights Act, 1998 was when this was passed. It's been over 20 years, and most people still don't know that there's a federal law that mandates that insurance has to cover your breast reconstruction. I still get asked all the time, how much is this going to cost me out of pocket, you know? And it other than your co-pays or whatever, you know, and, you know, it's some of our research that we've done as well to show that, um, you know, not only is this uh, a problem in 
are the communities that don't have um, the uh, resources and the surgeons that can offer these things. But even in our own community, you know, in the rural areas of Nevada, I mean, there's two big population centers in Nevada. Everything else is rural. But some of our research um, out of UNLV has shown that if you are greater than 50 miles away from your treating um, center for breast cancer, okay, you are to step back a little bit. You know, the treatments for breast cancer can either be lumpectomy radiation or complete mastectomy, okay, hopefully with reconstruction, the equivalent five-year survival, okay. But in the rural areas, if you're greater than 50 miles away, most of those patients will get defaulted to mastectomy because they will not be able to make the journey every day for the, the radiation for six weeks, you know, to drive back and forth, uh, you know. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of times there's no plastic surgeons in the rural areas. So not only are they defaulted to mastectomy, they then also do not have the option for reconstruction because nobody has talked to them about it. And they don't know that even in delayed fashion, after everything's cured, they can still get reconstruction. I mean, I can still offer those patients that have never had a reconstruction 5, 10, 20 years that want a reconstruction, there's many of the same options that we offer immediately. It's a, so, you know, for people who don't know, I mean, we're talking about, you know, uh, 85% of the population, or not of the population, of, but of the state, Nevada, yeah. is yeah. rural, yeah. right? And so you're talking about a, a significant portion of the population. So talk a little bit about the difference between the two uh, different areas that people could go in, why they would want to go, why they would want to have a mastectomy, for example. Um, you know, what are the options between the two? I mean, so that, that's definitely more of a personal um, decision for uh, the patient. You know, lumpectomy is considered breast-conserving therapy, okay? And the biggest thing with... Um, you know, lumpectomy is that you preserve the remainder of the breast uh, and you preserve your sensation. You because preserve... you're taking out a part, not the entire. Correct. Right. Correct. The downside to that is that you are going to require radiation to have the same equivalent outcomes, okay? And the majority of women will do fine with radiation, but some will have significant sequelae from that. Some will have scar contractures, indentations, asymmetries, either because of the amount of tissue that was taken or, you know, the effects of radiation. Because let's be honest, radiation is there to kill cancer cells, but it can't differentiate. So it's going to damage the other tissue as right. well, okay? And there's other techniques that can be done, you know, for patients that have macromastia, large breasts, or, you know, totic breasts, droopy breasts. We can do a lift uh, or a reduction on both breasts so that they can have improved outcomes while removing the part that is cancerous. Uh, and give them better symmetry afterwards. Even after the fact, if they've had lumpectomy and now they have a deformity, we can go in, break up that scar tissue, and you can't just break up the scar tissue because it's going to sink down in because you've lost the breast, but we can do liposuction, harvest the fat, and fat graft into that area and replace the breast tissue that was missing to help create and contour that, that defect. And it's just taking all our different, you know, options that we have to try to improve, um, you know, the form and, you know, essentially the contour and and basically what the desires are of the patient because we can reform this breast and then, you know, do a reduction, shaping, even an augmentation on the opposite breast um, to uh, regain symmetry. Now, you know, 
in that vein, one of the things that is different in the state of Nevada as opposed to some of the other states. Um, so I talked about that federal law that mm-hmm. covers reconstruction for mastectomy, okay? And that goes across the country. For lumpectomy, reconstruction isn't mandated by that same law because of the fact that it's breast conserving. Certain states like California and New York have their state laws that mandate reconstruction um, be covered by insurances. Now, I will say to the credit of our state that um, we haven't really had any problems getting coverage for um, patients that had um, that have wanted a reconstruction for lumpectomy defects. But, you know, um, you can never say never because it's not guaranteed. It's not in the law, yeah. right? And so, you know, going to the opposite side of it, when we're looking at um, mastectomy, you know, some patients, um, you know, regardless of what the five-year outcomes are, even if they're equivalent, you know, again, we revert back to the psychosocial things, right? Some people will just have that anxiety and want to minimize their potential risk of either recurrence or a brand new breast cancer, you know, forming, right? It's what we do for patients that have genetic de- uh, predispositions, right? BRCA1, BRCA2, countless other genes that they found. To minimize our risk, we remove the breast prophylactically, right? Because the number one risk for breast cancer is having a breast, right? If you minimize your breast tissue, that's less tissue that can transform into a cancer. Now, the downsides of the mastectomy are completely different than the lumpectomy, right? You um, remove the entirety of the breast, right? So unless you get reconstruction, you're going to be flat. Even if you do get reconstruction, you are going to lose the sensation. But, you know, we talked a little bit about the possibilities of restoring sensation. And then for um, many women, uh, you know, until recently, you know, they didn't have the options of preserving their nipple, okay? And now with a lot of more advanced techniques and using some of the things that we've developed in other surgeries, regardless of whether the nipple is in a perfect position or whether the nipple is in a not-so-perfect position, we can reshape that, that breast and recreate the breast and still preserve the nipple. And so, you know, the advances um, from a reconstructive standpoint have somewhat paralleled um, some of the advances from uh, the breast treatment um, standpoint. And that's, again, because of the need. I mean, we're having more and more patients that are um, – being survivors um, of this disease, that we want to improve their outcomes and their long-term, you know, um, quality of life. It's so you know, uh, so a couple of things. One, there's a fascinating book called The Paradox of Choice, and it talks about basically if you have more choices, you have more options to screw something up. Right? And and so I can see, especially when people are in a fragile state having multiple choices is, you know, is stifling in some cases. So, but sure. but as you're talking about it, I think it's great that you're having the conversations and so forth. But the other thing, you know, you've talked a bit about sort of the history of uh, plastic and reconstructive surgery. What do you see in the next five years or so for the field? I mean, field is ever advancing, right? We move on to the next um, need, the next problem. You know, that is probably the biggest strength as well as the biggest weakness of plastic surgery. We always want to develop a solution for the problem. Um, it's probably not known by many people, but um, certainly some of the procedures that are typically now done um, by urologists, the hypospadias, the abspadias, uh, or, um, you know, 
all of those things were developed by plastic surgery, but because it became common, you know, they didn't want to do them anymore. Um, large ventral hernia repairs, component separation, things like that, you know, um, plastic surgeons developed that. And now general surgeons have kind of come out because the plastic surgeons are available to do that um, stuff. Head and neck surgery as well, too. Some of it is because many plastic surgeons have gone on to aesthetic surgery and things that are more lucrative. And some of it is just because, you know, um, we don't have enough time to do um, this stuff that can be done by other people. We need to focus on the things that nobody else can do, right? Um, because there's that need, you know, particularly in this community, because there's not uh, as many plastic surgeons. And it's funny to, to think that, you know, when we look around, we say, oh, there's a ton of plastic surgeons here, right? Um, but I think the last um, uh a study that was done by the governor's office in the state, um, there was something in the range of only 50-something, so uh, plastic surgeons in the entirety of the state, and per capita, you know, based on national averages, were way below the average. And then if you think of that number and the amount that actually do reconstructive surgery, let alone complex reconstructive surgery, that's an even less amount of um, providers for any given need uh, in the state. So you have um, folks that have congenital um, issues, folks that want to have gender-affirming surgery, folks that want to have microsurgery or complex reconstruction that go out of state, not only because they don't have the providers, but also because they don't know that there are actually some providers here because of, you know, either referral patterns or lack of um, knowledge, lack of awareness and things like that. So, I mean, I think that's one of the things that, that um, we also have to improve um, in regards to letting people know what we are capable of and what we do. And I'll tell you, oftentimes I'll get patients that have found me on their own, either through word of mouth, the blogs, they've done their own research. Um, I'll get patients from uh, Wyoming, Alaska, and Idaho, you know, um, and even places like um, Arizona where they have, you know, the Mayo Scottsdale, and they'll still come up here and things like that, you know. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that we went from national, regional, uh, and local, right? Local is being able to provide the, um, the quality of care that is available in other um, states and other great centers. National is being able to um, put your name out there and have people know you and recognize you. Um, and that also reverts back to the local because I will tell you that for patients that have gone out and had their surgery at Stanford, at UCLA, at Northwestern, at MD Anderson, at Harvard, right? And then come back to Las Vegas. When they come back looking for care, they ask their their uh, colleagues or, or their surgeons over there, hey, you know, I had to go back to Las Vegas. And they'll say, oh, yeah, I know somebody over there. Why don't you go and they'll just give me a call. Yeah, I'll see your patient or whatnot. And then they ask, well, if they were going to send me to you anyway. And they're, why didn't I just get my surgery here? But, you know, I, uh, oftentimes when they see secondary opinions, you know, those um, folks at those institutions will say, oh, you should just go to this guy. He's in your in your own town. And that honestly is more validation and more peace of mind for the patient than anything we could tell them, you know, when those patients, when those surgeons are saying, hey, just go to this guy. It's a, it is, and I think it's more, it's happening more and more. As you know, there was a point where uh, if you had a serious medical problem, you got on the plane. And, you know, fortunately, those kinds of things are changing, and, it, and what you just said is great affirmation for that. So you, you bring up, a, we, we always want to talk about this at Thon uh, podcast, and this is Moments of Joy. Okay, so 
that here's the rule to it. I'd like to hear some of your moments of joy, but only two of them can be related to your children. Because I know you could have a lot of them to <laughs> your children. So what are some moments of joy that you've had in your life? Oh, uh, I mean, there are obviously multiple that relate to family and multiple that relate to career. I mean, um, I'm going to ask you to say one that has to do with Jenny and the girls. So I'm going to say the first one was going to be getting married, you know, okay. and, uh, you know, when, when I got married to my wife, we did this big, um, yeah, big old ceremony. Um, we, you know, overextended ourselves, borrowed a ton of money, um, to have a ceremony out in Lake Las Vegas. Cause it was one of our favorite places. Um, and going back to, uh, Bill Zamboni, he used to have, um, the, uh, um, welcome reception and, and certainly many other, um, you know, functions out at Lake Las Vegas cause he was a member out there. Um, and, um, yes, yeah, so we had our wedding, uh, on the, uh, Ponte Vecchio Bridge Chapel there. Yeah. And then our reception at, um, the, um, Beach and Yacht Club on the opposite side of the lake and, you know, had our, um, had our guests come to this chapel and then we rented the yacht to take them over to the other side of the lake. So like that, and we spent a ton of money. My wife was like, why are we spending all this money? And I'm like, well, hopefully this is our one and only time. <laughs> We're going to be doing it a lot. Of scene, you know? It uh, shows up on a podcast years later. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and these things always show up at some point. I remember I was getting interviewed for um, a newspaper article, and they found out that I um, worked with my wife, who's a breast cancer surgeon, and they asked me the question of, what, how was it like to be working with your wife all the time and, you know, being in the OR with her? And I tell them that oftentimes we're carpool because my wife used to drive and whatnot. Um, well, I don't know. I actually like spending time with my wife. So of course they're pretty well for friends. So, you know, um, so, I mean, uh, that I think is, is one of my, um, biggest joys. Like, you know, um, getting married and finding a, um, lifelong partner and, you know, uh, someone to spend, uh, your life with that kind of understands like the, you know, the rigors. Uh, you know, when I say understands, it's not really, she doesn't understand me. She just puts up with him for the most part. <laughs> you know? Yeah. She keeps asking why I do all these other things that, you know, I asked to do like, you know, both here for the hospital, for the school. Yeah. For our regional societies, for our national societies. And, well, it's right to do it. No. Uh, well, and it's, uh, I mean, I, you know, knowing you, I know it, you, it's also, uh, you feel an obligation to the field, right? To be able to contribute in a lot of different ways. Yeah. I mean, it, it's one of those things where, uh, like we talked about, you know, having, everybody has the imposter syndrome and I still think I have the imposter syndrome too, you know, um, to, to say, okay, no, I, yeah. What, what things, because I always ask myself, what things are my kids going to hate before? What things are my, is my wife going to hate before? What things are my residents or my faculty or the people around me, my colleagues are going to say, oh, you don't do enough of, or say, you know, you don't work hard enough. You know, what are the things on a national level that people see me at meeting and say, oh, well, he doesn't do this enough. He doesn't do that enough, right? Um, to, and, you know, to be honest with you, the higher you achieve, the more you think that you don't. It, it's like the, you know, there's that one um, study that they did on the amount of money that you have and where, you know, you plateau. And then, you know, the more money you have, you, you know, you're probably like, the more you achieve, 
the more you think you haven't achieved and you need to, because then you find out other things that you still haven't achieved yet, you know, because then you're starting to compare yourself to other people and it's never ending really, you know, but the, that's when your family grounds you. That's when, you know, what do you do with your family? It has to be balanced with what you do in your career, you know, with the colleagues, your junior faculty that you want to bring up and elevate, you know, I mean, I, I want to continue to achieve for them. And then once they reach that level, then I can probably ease back and say, okay, now I've, you know, got them to a certain level where they don't need me to reach this other level. But, you know, same thing for the residents and, you know, the, the other um, trainees, medical students, general surgery residents that want to go into plastic surgery to be able to say, okay, uh, I can get, you know, and to be able to get them there, you have to have those connections. You have to have that uh, visibility. You have to have that um, cachet amongst the people that are going to be, you know, taking in those residents, taking in those med students, you know, getting people jobs in those academic realms, right? Getting people um, on those committees. Um, you know, sometimes you have to found these things that really startle. You know, I mean, um, I was one of the founding members of our regional society, the Mountain West Society of Plastic Surgeons, um, with um, UNLV, University of Utah, University of Colorado, and Mayo Scottsdale, uh, because our regional society had kind of... Um, essentially dissolved because um, there was nobody that was really involved in it. So we had to basically restart the society. We ended up having to change the name because the previous name of the society uh, was trademarked. And we had to make a commitment amongst our institutions to say, we as the chiefs and chairs of these institutions will commit to sending our faculty, our residents, so that no matter who else shows up, to these meetings, we are going to make sure that it continues on. And, you know, we've incorporated now University of New Mexico, and it's kind of taken on a life of its own. This uh, mountain, let's say, this is the pin on it right here. And you can see it's actually, a, the MW is actually, but it's also um, a double black diamond because we all are big ski snowboard uh, fanatics. So, you know, obviously we wanted to try to make our meeting in a nice ski snowboard place. So, you know, We've gone to different places over the, the years, Snowbird, um, Park City. Um, we've gone to, uh, what do you call it, Winter Park, Squaw. One year when I hosted, I'm uh, the president this year and hosting uh, the meeting of next year, and I'll be hosting it in Whistler. First time international, but it's a beautiful. Yeah, but now we have folks from all over the country wanting to come to our meeting, even international, right? And they'll be reaching out to me um, who say, hey, you know, uh, you know, I hear you guys are doing the meeting in Whistler. Can you get me on the program? You know, I'd like to give a talk on this and that, you know? And I was, yeah, sure. You know, and, and they're coming up to us as ULB asking us for favor. These are guys from, you know, the Harvard and Dukes and the MD Andersons of the world, right? Um, and they're looking at us to help them, you know? Okay. That's fantastic. Okay. So I have a couple of, uh, finishing things to say. First of all, uh, the, there's an old saying that comparison is the thief of joy. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, you've done some remarkable things, and I think, uh, not that I'm coaching you, but if I were coaching you, I would say, don't worry about the things that people are going to hate you for, and, but think about the things that you love you for, right? Um, because I think that those are the things, when you do that, you, you're a role model for those people as well that you're talking about, including your family, all the way through. Okay, so give me one more uh, one more moment of joy, and then uh, I'll leave you alone for the rest of the day. All right, well, so I already gave one on the family. Um, I guess 
we'll do one for um, a career in town, you know. I mean, it's, there's so many different things that, you know, we've been able to accomplish here in such a short amount of time um, at UNLV with, you know, going from a division to a department, expanding the faculty, um, you know, all of these things. But I think probably um, one of the biggest achievements, um, or, I mean, I, I think it's more of a joy just because, you know, one of the things I love to do is travel, but uh, being named a, um, a visiting professor um, of our uh, natural site, American Society of Plastic Surgeons, um, being elected um, as that of my peers, and this is where the National Society actually sponsors you and pays for you to go to multiple different institutions. And these institutions, I mean, you give them, you know, once you get selected, you give them the list of all the topics that you can lecture on. And then the institutions across the country are able to, you know, look at the people that have been selected and, you know, put down their rank list of, okay, I want this person to come out and this or it. And, um, you know, I'll tell you, I, I was uh, lucky enough to be able to be selected by um, eight different institutions and be able to visit their places, um, give talks, um, do cadaver dissections, um, speak with their residents, um, you know, Stanford, UCSF, University of Illinois, Chicago. Um, I was at um, Harvard, Beth Israel Deaconess. Um, I was at Ohio State, you know, um, University of Minnesota. Tons of great institutions to be able to show them what we do here in Las Vegas. Um, and so that they could see, you know, again, you know, going back to the robotic stuff, that's something that we are known for, that, you know, we're at the forefront of um, these things. And, um, you know, they're telling us, I mean, these big institutions are like, oh, how do I get that started in my institution? You know, and, and it's almost like a, you know, oxymoron where we're trying to get our medical student, mm -hmm. our medical school up and running. But these big established centers of excellence are asking us how to develop these programs that, you know, we are at the forefront of. So, um, you know, that is one of the things that I think has probably made me one of the happiest in my career to have those institutions request me to come out there and give lectures to show them what we're doing here in Las Vegas. Because these are, again, big name institutions that have, you know, been there for decades, even some of them hundreds of years, right? Um, and so that, that's, you know, definitely some um, uh, really, um, accept, not only acceptance, but really um, uh, underscoring of uh, the stuff that you do and, and is meaningful and stuff like that. And you know, I think one of the things that you talked about in regards to, you know, really focusing on all the things that you've done, you never really think about that. And unfortunately, it's one of those things, I, I don't know if it's a card or one of those things that, you know, you never really hear about all the great things that you've done until after you're gone. Mm -hmm. And it's really one of those things where, you know, somebody should really tell you while you're still here, right? Because <laughs> oftentimes well, they don't put it all together until yeah. you can't hear it anymore. So. My friend, Dr. Rich Baynosa, you are Always no imposter. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Pleasure. Always Thank a you. pleasure. It's great. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We hope you found it interesting, informative, insightful. We'd love for you to be part of the community if you're not already. Please follow us on Instagram, subscribe to us on YouTube and Spotify, and leave any questions or comments you may have. That informs our future content. And thank you very much for your time and attention. We hope you enjoyed it. Looking forward to seeing you next time.